no matter what the strong emotion is, the strong feelings, the strong ideas, whether or not it dissolves, you stay on that cushion until the time is up. You don't let it run your life, even to the extent that you get up from the cushion early. The most important thing about these strong emotions, and I should add that joy is another emotion that can sort of distort our vision. No matter what the strong emotion is, the strong feelings, the strong ideas, to, to not act on your anger and your desire and your ignorance, that's the most important thing. If they're pleasant, you can appreciate them, but you don't act on them. Zen Master Bonehei, Judy Reutman, began practicing with Zen Master Sung San in 1976 while teaching at Wellesley College. In 1978, she joined the Department of Mathematics at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, married her husband, Stan Lombardo, now Zen Master Hei Kuang, and helped found what became the Kansas Zen Center. Zen Master Bonehei received Inca, or permission to teach, in 1998 and transmission in 2013. You can find some of her articles in Buddha Dharma, much of her poetry online, and most of her mathematics papers behind institutional paywalls. Zen Master Bonehei is currently the guiding teacher of the Kansas Zen Center. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are eligible for a free month of training using the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Judy, it's great to have you. Nice to be here. And I thought I would start today with an email that you sent me as we were sort of in dialogue about this interview. I sent you a an email asking if you could send me some articles that talked about your teaching. And you, you sent me back this great email that said, Hi, Ian, I'm a little puzzled by Express Your Teaching Well, because I don't think of myself as having any particular teaching. And I just sort of saw this email and I just kind of rolled my eyes. I was like, oh my God, Zen teachers, they're so <laughs> into this emptiness. And then I was listening to an introductory talk that you were giving, or maybe it was, um, I'm not sure exactly whether it was introductory or not, but you were giving a talk at the Poland Kilche that was happening. And you really went into what it means or what the quantum school relationship is to teaching and not teaching. And you'd been to see another teacher who said, this is the way. And I was just kind of wondering where you fell into this. I'm a little puzzled by express your teaching because I don't think of myself as having a particular teaching, but yet people go to you as their teacher. So 
how does that all sort of fit together? Well, first of all, that um, actually I was whisked away from Kielce. It was a very, um, it was a big public event in an art gallery in Warsaw. And I had terrible bronchitis, so it was very interesting. They whisked me to a doctor almost immediately afterwards. Mm. Um, and they wanted me to talk about math and Zen because they needed a topic. <laughs> but, of course, I didn't talk about math and Zen. Um, so, first of all, I don't think of people as being my students. And one of the wonderful things about the Quantum School of Zen is you have your guiding teacher of your Zen Center, and you might have several other teachers affiliated with your Zen Center, like we have two teachers here. Um, but you're encouraged to sit with other teachers. We bring in other teachers um, as guest teachers. It's not the sense of a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's more like you're in graduate school and you have your thesis advisor, but you also work with other people. That's sort of how I think of it. So um, there isn't a sense of my students or my teacher. There is, it's, it's broader. I mean, yes, there, there is obviously a closer relationship with the people that you see all the time, but there's also this broader vision. So my teacher, now that I've said we don't have students and teachers, my teachers and Master Sung San, um, he would say, I don't teach Buddhism. I only teach don't know. So if I were to say my teaching is that all things are one or that everything is emptiness or anything like that, anything that you can capture in a phrase, anything that you can capture in a sentence or a paragraph or a book, that's automatically not don't know. You've pinned something down. You've made something. So how could I have a particular teaching? Also, if you, if you say, this is my teaching, then what happens is you've closed off everything else. Then the other things can't be your teaching. Hmm. And there, there's this um, a Chinese teacher, uh, he died a long time ago. Uh, what is it? Chan Master Hua is how I know him. I forget his full name. And he set up the City of 10,000 Buddhas in Ukiah, Cal California in the center of, of the pot country. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's this huge, ornate, you know, Chinese-style place. And he, it's funny because he was very autocratic, but he described himself, the phrase he would use is a good-knowing advisor. And I don't, not really, I don't think that it's giving advice, but it's like you're, 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 you're people's companion. You're, you're there to sort of, respond to the needs of the people in front of you. And you, you know, it's like Buddha, he would say different things to different people. Right. You know, or, you know, what is Buddha? Mind is Buddha. What is Buddha? No mind. You know, it's, it's, you give the same question gets different answers depending on who you're talking to. So you're responding to the person in front of you. And so that's why the notion of this is my teaching just doesn't resonate with me. It, it, it becomes, it narrows things. It closes things off. Yeah, I guess what I really, when I was listening to you give that talk, what was so helpful about it, you know, I, I recognized that I'd sort of rolled my eyes because I was like, why wasn't, why won't she just tell me, you know? But then there was this point of, 
oh, almost like there's a teaching coming through me or I'm here as just a companion. Um, but then there are all of these people that are coming to see you, depend on you. So many, you know, whether you're a, a, a Zen master or, a, you know, a, a priest somewhere, or, you know, it's so easy for people to come and and they're really looking for guidance. How do you, as you guide them, help them separate you from the teaching? The best thing a teacher can give a student is for the student to believe in themselves. So, you know, people would come and listen to Zen Master Sung Sun. And what you would get from Zen Master Sung Sun is to not be attached to his words. And what you would get from him is this incredible energy and this incredible centeredness and this incredible clarity and the realization that you could also have that and in fact you already had it. That's the best thing a teacher can give a student Hmm. is not for the student to believe in the teacher as this exterior authority but for the teacher, for the student to realize that what this teacher has and is, is what the student also has and is, that you already have it. It's yours. You don't need to go somewhere else to get it. Hmm. So to me, the job of the teacher is to encourage people to practice, encourage them to find that for themselves, encourage them to really believe in themselves. That's what my job is. Hmm. And believe in their true self, not you know, believe in some silly thing like, oh, I'm the greatest this or I'm the best that, you know, not that kind of belief in yourself, but belief in this true self, which doesn't belong to you. It's much bigger than you are. And to believe in that, and then everything you do comes from that, which of course is not, never actually happens. Not even with Zen Master Sung Sun did it happen. Not even with Buddha did it happen. But as much as possible, everything we do comes from this center, comes from this true self, which we don't own. It's not ours. And it's completely ours. Mm -hmm. Going back a little ways to the, you know, the talk that you got whisked away to, I imagine because you're a mathematician, that people are always trying to get you to talk about math and and Buddhism and, and how that relates. In an article that you published uh, just a few months ago in Buddha Dharma, September uh, 2018, you talk about, it's an article you have about Kungans. And you have this great line where it's, uh, you know, you're giving six points to, to Kungans. Um, and uh, let me see if I can find the exact line, but it's essentially like being clever is not going to help you, which really struck me in a funny place because I realized you must kind of operate in these two worlds where around the faculty uh, table, you know, being clever must be highly prized. And then you go home uh, or you go to the Zen center to, to work with students and you're like, by the way, don't be clever. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering how you sort of navigated those two spaces or, or perhaps I'm 
misunderstanding how the, the faculty table worked. Yeah, well, the faculty table people generally weren't very clever. Um, <laughs> so fact number three, I'm looking at the paper here, being clever isn't going to help you. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. that's, that's what it says, so you got it right. Um, so first of all, that's a, there's a misunderstanding there about mathematics. When, when you do mathematics, it's actually, it's very similar to working on cons. Um, if you... If you try to control the situation too much, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm. So what happens when you work on mathematics, it's, it's sort of like holding up a jewel to the light. And you just turn it around and you look at it. And your mind has to be very, very open. You just keep turning around and looking at it and you, you turn another way. And then suddenly you see a way in. So it's very much like working on cons. It's not about cleverness. It's about being observant. In this peculiarly abstract world, but it's it's about a kind of a, being observant in a way that's not about your senses, but it's a very similar thing where you're just looking at something and you're turning around, and you're you're trying to find like the little the little crack that'll let you in that'll let you know like um uh, what's his name the great singer um you know that'll let oh, the light in yeah Leonard Cohen yeah, Leonard Cohen yeah, yeah. um so. It's more like that. So it's actually not at all a contradiction. I mean, yeah, there's a kind of cleverness that people in academia tend to have, but that, that's not really relevant to the real work. It's just kind of this patina that you can have or you don't have to have. Hmm. Not everyone is clever around the faculty table. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's useful in a way, but it's also useless in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not the point. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that your sort of encounter with math was, guided your, your Zen study, or was that just two parallel tracks? Yeah, I, I don't even know parallel. It's just, you know, you're, you live your life and you do all these things. I mean, nobody ever says, does your cooking affect your driving? Who <laughs> does that? But, <laughs> you yeah. just do all these things in your life. Why do you have to have this unified life where everything leads to something else? And every, you, you, yeah. know, you are not a unified being, right? That's one of the great observations that you make as you, you know, sit on the cushion. You mean to realize that you're not this little marble, you know, that the, this stuff arises and it goes away and it dissolves and it appears. And, you know, you're a thousand things at once and none of them have any real existence. And what the hell is going on here? And, you know, so the whole idea, you have to be a unified being, you know, why? Yeah. You're not. No, that's, I agree. I, um, I just sort of think of them as both kind of mystical pursuits in a way. When I think about math at the level that you were working on. Um, like you said, quite abstract. Yeah, it was set theories about the empty set and models of the universe. And I worked on um, consistency results, which means statements that you can't prove and you can't disprove. So you find a model where the statement is true and another model where the negation is true. And, you know, they're all models of the whole universe, the whole mathematical universe. How mystical can you can you get? So, um, yeah, that's... That's, uh, I guess you could say that, but you know, it's just what I did. It's not special. But then you also wrote about Nagarjuna and, and, mm-hmm. uh, sort of his, uh, 
I think you called it a tetra dilemma. Uh, no, a tetra dilemma. Te- 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 tetra dilemma. That didn't originate with him. So uh-huh. that's this is ancient Indian philosophy. Uh-huh. So uh, the tetra dilemma is there are many forms, but one form is uh, you know fill in any noun for x. You can tell I'm a mathematician. Yeah. X is x is not not x and not not x x and not x. So, you know, and there, there are other forms of the tetralemma. So the idea is you have these, these statements, and the whole point of the tetralemma is that none of them are true. So the sky is blue is not true, and the sky is not blue is not true, and the sky is not blue and not the sky is not blue. That's also not true, and the sky is both blue and not blue. That's also not true. So what that's really pointing to is, again, it's pointing to don't know. It's saying whatever we think we know, we actually don't know. That's all it is, mm. you know. And it's very fancy. And there's this wonderful book um, by Nagarjuna, which the let's see if I can get it right. Mula Madhyamaka Karika, translated as the fundamental wisdom of the middle way. And the translation by Jay Garfield is a fantastic book. His commentary is amazing. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. But, that you know, it's just, again, it's just pointing to this don't know. It's saying that our thinking mind is going to get us into trouble all the time because the minute things enter as thought and as language, then that means that we've lost something. We're missing something when we do that. Hmm. And what, what is it that we're missing? Or You can't say it. Yeah. If you could say it, you'd be missing it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like a newborn baby opens its eyes. Yeah. Yeah, a newborn baby opens its eyes. It's that mind. Yeah. In this same article in the the September issue of Buddha Dharma, you're talking about what kunans are, what they're not. And you give the example of uh, Nam Cham's cat or Nan uh, Chuan's cat. And you had this great line where it was, you know, he really is killing a cat and this really is your life. And I, I think sometimes people come to, into interview to do Kung An practice and it's a little, it is about being clever or, you know, it can feel that way. But what is that? What do you mean by that when you say, like, this is your life? This is the answer to this Kung An really is your life. Well, obviously, I can't give away the answer. No, <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really glad you got to that because things were getting very abstract there. Yeah. And I was getting very uncomfortable because, you know, what about compassion and what about suffering and you know how did buddhism start it it started when buddha looked around and said whoa everybody's suffering man you know what's this suffering about how can i end this suffering and you know we usually think of ending suffering i want to end my suffering you know people people start practicing because they want to end their suffering i mean that's how i started i didn't start with zen i started with relaxation response because I was so miserable. I mean, I was suicidal. I was delusional. I was all kinds of things and, you know, had this great shrink and everything like that. But I started meditating because of that, because I just needed a way to calm down. You know, a lot of people come to the Zen center like that. They need a way to calm down. But then after a while you realize you can't end your suffering until you end 
all beings suffering mm. because we're all connected. We're just so completely connected. And it's not even like we're connected. It's like if you look at the fingers of your hand and then you cover up so that you can't see the palm and you look at it, it's like four little puppets on a stage. I'm doing this with my hands, even though no one can see it. You know, it's like four little puppets on a stage. You think, oh, those are different puppets, you know. But then you, you uncover and you say, whoa, wait a minute. They're deeply, deeply, deeply connected, you know. So it's like that. So what Buddha realized is, and this is the whole, you know, Mahayana, you can't, your own suffering is just part of this ocean of suffering. And we all have to work together. We all have to work together. That's what a lot of the chants in the quantum school of Zen say. They say things like, you know, together we vow to achieve enlightenment together in the same moment, at once, simultaneously. So there's this great cosmic vow that all beings take, you know? So we're, we're so inextricably entwined. You know, that's what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh means when he talks about interbeing. So there's this in, intrinsic connection that we have, and not just with human beings, you know, just all creatures. I mean, even bacteria, we're just all part of the same thing, and we're not even part of the same thing. I mean, we're all the same. You know, it's this big mystic thing. You can't really say it, right? But this this deep sense of connection and this deep sense of, of recognizing suffering, not as trying to escape from suffering, but really acknowledging it and working together to help each other in this ocean of suffering, which is not, of course, saying we don't have wonderful things too, because those exist, but I want to focus on the suffering part. So yeah, so Namchan is holding up this cat, you know, and you can imagine, I always imagine he's holding up by the tail and the cat is just like (laughs) doing all the screeching and whatever a cat would do in that situation. And then he kicks out his knife you know, and then meanwhile, there's 500 young monks, you know, they're all like, you know, in their teens and early 20s, right? They're kids. And they, you know, they, they, they're fighting over this cat because each, each the Western Hall and the Eastern Hall, they all want this cat for themselves. And he grabs and picks it up. He's got this knife. He says, give me one word or I will kill this cat. You know, and you, oh, what am I going to do? So boom, he kills the cat. You know, that's the situation. And what in that moment are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And that's our lives. That's actually what our lives are like right now. I was walking down the street with some friends, this is true, and there was a guy, um, you know, the, it was the main street in our little town. We were coming out of a restaurant, and there was this guy sort of sitting on the sidewalk, like a, you know, like a homeless guy, and he was pretty young, and he was lying down. And he was like moaning. He looked really sick, just really, really sick, like something was terribly wrong. He was obviously in a lot of physical pain. And we stopped and we said to him, are you okay? And he sort of, you know, pulled himself up and, you know, to a sitting position. And he said, yeah, I'm okay. You know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. Like he just didn't want you know, us to call an ambulance or something. And, you know, I don't know why, but, you know, he just, it was, he was sending up this vibe, like, you know, I, I, I don't want to be taken to the hospital. I don't want the police to be called, you know, just leave me alone kind of thing. 
And so we said, oh, okay, and we walked on. And I thought, I, as I was doing that, I was saying, like, maybe I should just sit here with him for a minute. Maybe I should just sit here with him and, you know, just quietly and just make sure he's okay and maybe talk to him for a little bit. But I had someplace to go. I was supposed to be someplace in five minutes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of picking up my phone and saying, you know, I, I, I can't meet you in five minutes because I'm, I'm hanging out with this guy here and I think he needs a little bit of help. And, you know, maybe you could come over here and, you know, join me and, and see if we can help this guy. I just said, okay. And I walked on. So I flunked. I just flunked that con. <laughs> you know? And so that's, that's what I mean by it's our life. We're just constantly hit with with these things, and we how do we respond to them? What do we do? And again, the Mahayana vision is really useful here because there's this tendency to think I alone have to fix everything, and then we feel hopeless and we give up. But it's no; it's more like all together we're working together. So, where is my part? What is my job? Where is the situation that I can step in? that I can do something, you know, what's appropriate in the moment. So Zen Master Sung Sung always used to talk about um, correct situation, correct relationship, which means relationship to the situation, and correct function. So what actually is the situation that we're looking at? That's the first question. What is the situation? Not what do we think it is, but what is it actually? And then what is our relationship to this situation. And the example I always use is, you know, you're walking along and you see someone drowning. So if you know how to swim, you jump in. If you don't know how to swim, you holler for help. So what is your relationship to the situation? And then third of all, what is your function in that situation? So that's, that's very important. And that, you know, killing Nam Chan, killing the cat, that's what that's about. Yeah, I was listening to Ken Kessel give a Dharma talk, I don't know, like mm -hmm. a year ago or so. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how he was in New York and he'd come across these two guys fighting on the street and like they were about to go to blows. And he just mm -hmm. hops in and says, can I buy you guys a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> and they both were like, so like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then he went off and got he like went off and got them a cup of coffee, and uh -huh. you know it just that the fight just ended. And what was uh -huh. so surprising about that is I had just walked into the Dharma talk, having been in Central Square in Cambridge, and mm -hmm. was watching along with about twenty other people as these two guys were about to go to blows. And I felt mm -hmm. we were all just standing there like, oh my god, I hope nothing happens, mm -hmm. but none of us knew what to do. Uh -huh. And then I walk into this Dharma talk and it's like, you know, that might not have been the right answer, but there was another answer, you know? Right. Which was... Well, it's like, you know, you know, the, the one about the, um, a story we tell a lot of precept ceremonies about knowing when to break precepts. And so, you know, the, the farmer's in the field and the rabbit comes hopping along, hoppity, hoppity, hop, and then, you know disappears to the left and then the hunter comes where's the rabbit i always imagine elmer fudd you know where's yeah. the rabbit where's the rabbit you know so the the farmer points to the right so they've just lied they've broken a precept but it's to save the rabbit's life you know so no one to hold the precepts and no one to break the precepts but 
Then there's a, there's a twist because the hunter comes and it's not Elmer Fudd. It's a guy who has a starving family and they haven't had any food like in days. And the farmer knows this. And so the hunter comes along and then the, the farmer points to the left so that the hunter will kill the rabbit and feed his family. So my husband was telling this story uh, out in, in, a, in Arkansas, the Sangha in Arkansas. And this woman in the back raises her hand and says, well, if I were that farmer, I would just invite the family in for soup. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Kungans are there to be, you know, I get hung up on them as, you know, as these fixed tales, but really they are just appearing every Really, every moment, I guess, is what you're mm-hmm. what you're saying. So there are times in my practice when I feel, you know, very connected to my direction, my question, and then there are times when I feel that the the sort of the desires are so strong, they're so they're so attractive, and. Um, for me, particularly, it's like anger and self-righteousness. Like, God, I, I love them. <laughs> like they're, yeah, they're really seductive. They're like my parents. I love them so much. Yeah, people love them. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I had this... You ex- know you exist because you're angry. Really? What is that? Yeah, I mean, you're angry and then you know you exist. It's really, you know, wonderful. Yeah, I feel power. Which, yeah, exactly. You know leaves mm-hmm. me to believe like after I'm sort of dealing with the hangover of it I'm like mm-hmm. Ugh, why do I feel so powerless and that I need mm-hmm. this fantasy of mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering what advice you give to students a guidance you give to students who are wrestling with these you know the the, the attractiveness the seductiveness of of these fantasies so everybody wrestles with those. Mm. I'm sure the Buddha wrestled with those, and not just before he woke up. I'm sure he wrestled with them his whole life. Everyone does. So what is their substance? You investigate that. What is the substance of this anger? And if you look really, really closely, it dissolves. Mm. And the second thing is, this actually should have been the first thing I said, whether or not it dissolves, you stay on that cushion until the time is up. You don't let it run your life, even to the extent that you get up from the cushion early. Hmm. The most important thing about these strong emotions, and I should add that joy is another emotion that can help us not see what's happening that can sort of distort our vision. So no matter what the strong emotion is, the strong feelings, the strong ideas, don't act on them. That's the most important thing. If they're pleasant, you can appreciate them, but you don't act on them. When I was um, in college and there was some kind of crisis in my life and I I called a friend of mine and and started talking about crisis. And he said, don't cry. The sky is blue. 
know, that's not helpful. Yeah. So that's an example of a so-called positive feeling getting in the way. So this don't know is so important. So don't, to, to not act on your anger and your desire and your ignorance, to not act on any of that. But just, and to, to keep with the practice, keep with the schedule, keep with what it is you're supposed to do. To just do that. That's extremely important. And then that stuff doesn't control you anymore. And that's the point. To have this mind which is, you know, like Zen Master Sung San used to say, clear like space, which actually comes to the Avatamsaka Sutra I just discovered. This phrase, you know, clear like space, to have a mind which is clear like space and to function in the moment exactly as you're needed to function. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Bonhey, Judy Reutman, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the Kansas Zen Center's website, kansaszencenter.org, where you can find a number of articles and their retreat schedule, or by friending them on Facebook. The Kansas Zen Center is building a new Zen Center, so if you would like to help spread the Dharma, please click on the link Capital Campaign on their website and consider making a donation. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of membership, which includes individual Kungan interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of membership, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review of the podcast. This helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.